So how many world championships have you had? World champion 13 times. <laughs> it's amazing. Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guest is Tristan Chernov. He's a Paralympic cycling champion who is set to compete at the Tokyo 2021 Games. In 2009, he was diagnosed with Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, which is a degenerative disease of the peripheral nervous system. In an effort to counteract the impacts of the disease, Tristan switched from competitive paddling to cycling. He is now a 13-time world champion, plus he earned a full set of medals from the Rio Paralympic Games, gold, silver, and bronze. In 2017, Tristan won every world championship that exists for track and road paracycling, something that had never been done before. He received the People's Choice Award Canadian Cyclist of the Year for three consecutive years and has been nominated as Sport BC Athlete of the Year for the past three years. Through Tristan's role on Cycling Canada Athletes Council, he was instrumental in implementing a Cyclist to Cyclist mentor program to bring cyclists together virtually throughout the pandemic. In July 2020, Tristan broke the BC Epic 1000 record by eight hours and raised $40,000 for the Paralympic Foundation of Canada in the process. Tristan lives in Cranbrook, BC with his wife and two daughters. He is the president and CEO of Elevate Airports and even received Cranbrook's Business Person of the Year Award from the Chamber of Commerce. As you will learn through our conversation, Tristan never does anything halfway. He is filled with passion and drive and hopes that his legacy can be a vehicle for positive change towards a future full of opportunity, equality, accessibility, and diversity in sport. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, hello. Hi. Ah, uh, the Tristan Trenov. This is awesome. <laughs> Teammates, somebody that we like to hang out with on projects. We've shared a room together, but also somebody that since day one I met you, I've been inspired by you. Thank you. This is great. And it's been far too long since we've been able to be roommates at a project. Let's hope that that changes soon. That was a highlight of the world, actually, for me, getting to know you better and having you coach me through some difficult moments that we had there as well. You got a little taste of the benefit, like I always have, of living with a psychologist, hey? Isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, great. <laughs> the power of a team, right? The beautiful thing about being in this together. It is an individual sport, but to be there as a team and to support each other we race on different days, so you're heading into race day, really important, right? Defending world champ. What was going on for you during that world? This was last February, track para world championships. That was the last time that I had a chance to race. Cause I guess the same for you. So it's been a long run of, of alternative racing, virtual racing and other things. I can easily walk myself back to that time because the memories are very vivid still. And specifically what was going on for me is something that commonly plagues me is trying to manage my sleep leading into events that are of the utmost importance. It's something I continue to play with strategies and, and work on. As you recall, I had a few days of fairly inadequate sleep and was having to, with your help, remind myself that that's one element of many. And there's always going to be certain elements that aren't exactly the way we wish them to be. We just have to call on the other parts of ourselves to overcome that. Mm -hmm. It was awesome to have you going through that process and really reflecting back on what does amp you up. And that's one of the things we want to check in, what we do have as mindset tools. And for you to remember what it was, what was your main thing that you were focusing on in that time in Worlds when the pressure was so high as a defending world champion? I think often what it is for myself is just questioning whether I've done everything within my power to prepare 
And specifically when it comes to track, because I live in a very rural part of British Columbia where I don't have access to a velodrome and I spend so little time on a track that it really gets into my head that I start to feel like I don't deserve to win because I'm not as prepared as my competitors who all live in cities. They live and breathe the velodrome. They're training every Mm -hmm. day there. They're practicing their technique while I get to get on a track a little bit ahead of a Worlds or Paralympic Games. And so I really start to question whether my technique is optimized, whether I'm going to be able to get out of the gate effectively. I just don't have the internal dialogue. I do have those skills, obviously, but uh, Mm -hmm. I, I compare myself too much to the external world instead of looking at where I've come. And now we're aiming for Tokyo. And you're going to Tokyo for sure, right? You lucky duck. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this world, can we ever say for sure? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, if the Paralympics happen, then yes, Tristan is going. (laughs) Lowell's just a little bit jealous of that certainty that you have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you've had a tremendous career in cycling already, and it's fairly new. So what we'd like to do is kind of go back into the story, get to know Tristan, even right back from childhood. I know that riding your bike for the first time even was a moment of joy for you way back when. And then you've been in and out of different sports sports and competed at some really high levels. So let's go back to the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. <laughs> wow. Back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you shot out of the birth canal and go, no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Actually, that's really where the story begins. Let's talk birth because I had a very unusual beginning. Mm. Both my parents moved to Canada in the late 60s, the tail end of the Vietnam War, when really a lot of the United States was feeling disillusioned and and upset with the U.S. government in a big way. And they were definitely part of that segment of the population. My parents both were in UCLA. So my father, although he was the right age, wasn't called upon on the draft because he was a student still. But the moment that he graduated from chemistry, I think within weeks, he got his draft notice and went to basic training. It's quite an unusual story that by that time, there was starting to be such a movement of animosity about what was going on, even within the military, I think, in the U.S., what was going on at the very tail end of Vietnam, which really this was getting to be that point in time. My father and a man named Don Burgess became quite good friends with their training officer and their commanding sergeant during their training, and they got the tap on the shoulder one night that they were getting called up to front lines the next day. So the story goes, they were going to get called up and they were told the keys to the Jeep are in it. So my dad and his friend Don got in the Jeep and drove on Highway 101 until it ended, which is a little fishing community in BC called Lund, the coastal highway out of California. They set up camp there. Dad waited, called for my mom, and they started a new life in this little tiny fishing village that it was kind of a, a haven for draft dodgers and hippies. And, uh, who are trying to build a bit of a utopian lifestyle in this very rural little region of the province. I went to a little two-room schoolhouse. At one time, we had over 30 students, but really small community. Wow. A lot of like-minded people with lofty intentions to change the world. Wow. And then when did you come into it? I was born in 75. Again, a very unusual start. My mom became a midwife and she was sort of the community midwife 
there weren't a lot of other midwives. So she was her own midwife when I oh was my. born. <laughs> I can't <laughs> and, imagine. Uh, I was born in a little A-frame house that my father had built. And when I was born, I was born in the intact amniotic sac. So the story goes, again, again there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that I question with these stories. The origin story of Tristan. <laughs> the story is I was born in the intact amniotic sac. And my mother and father were there just sort of looking at it like, well, what do we do? There's like this egg with this baby floating in it. And right at that time, one of their friends named Murray came through the door and came immediately onto the scene, grabbed the amniotic sac and ripped it open and took me out. And he's the one who gave me my name. Oh, yeah. wow. How often does that happen that babies once. are born. Once. It only happened to him once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how often is that a thing? I didn't. I have not heard of that. It's quite unusual, but I think there is something genetic about it because my firstborn daughter also was born that way, oh. Bronwyn. I did look it up once, and it is quite rare in some cultures that they they say it's a sign of a saint. So I was often there was a joke that I was saint of the sack. Oh, okay. Saint well, sack. that makes sense. So, um, did Murray? He just happened upon your house, or? Did they call him or, and then he just saw like, oh, he's like, oh, we got to rip that amniotic sac, get that baby out. Like he just knew. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so he was just in the five kilometer radius and thought he would stop by for a boarding visit. And wow. And then he was the hero who then got to name you. That's correct. Oh, yeah. Wow. He was an athlete in his own right. So he was a baseball player who decided to come up to Powell River from the U.S. as well, but was en route to probably a pro baseball career. He was a catcher. So he named me after a baseball player named Tristan Speaker, who I guess was one of his baseball heroes. Oh, cool. I was going to say that's an excellent choice for a name. Yeah. My mom was named by her sister, who was five at the time, and she named her Betty after a doll in the corner with no head. Oh. <laughs> that's my mom's oh. naming story. <laughs> so you had it good. Yeah. So epic beginnings for an epic man. Do you remember your first time riding a bicycle? I certainly do. We lived on a 50-acre co-op farm with a few other families. We had a, an overhanging deck and then a driveway that was about a 2% grade down to the meeting of three of the other driveways in this co-op farm. It was my birthday, so it was spring, it was May, and I was so excited. It was a Mighty Might, or Mighty Mouse? Mighty Might? I think they called it Mighty Might, but it had a picture of Mighty Mouse on it. It was a white little tiny BMX bike, <laughs> and I could not have dreamed of a better present. I was Aww. so excited and happy. <laughs> and I got outside and I didn't know how to ride a bike yet. And my dad quickly looked at the driveway and thought, no, this isn't a great place to learn how to ride a bike. So we had a little Toyota pickup truck and my dad put the bike in the back of the truck and no way I was not sitting on that bike. I was not going to sit in the cab with the truck. I was sitting on the bike. <laughs> and in those days, I think parenting had a that different okay. perception of, of reasonable risk. <laughs> There was a canopy on the truck, I will say. And Okay, so you were totally safe. <laughs> I sat on the back of the bike in the truck on the drive to town <laughs> to, to Willington Beach Park, which is a park with a nice little rolling hill covered in grass. I remember fear immediately vanished, excitement replaced it. And I remember being at the top of the grass hill and my dad just sort of explained, start moving the pedals, try to steer away from those trees if you get rolling and he just let go and gravity did the job. I made it probably 10 or 15 feet, fell over. But two or three pushes down the hill later, <laughs> we had it. Wow. And uh, there was no looking back. I totally fell in love with cycling. Not too long after learning how to ride a bike, my dad's closest friend, someone I have always thought of as my uncle, was a welder. He came up 
short time after that with a homemade mini bike that he had made for my brother and I with a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine in it. Oh, wow. And the brake was just like a lever that had a piece of an old road tire on it that you push on with your foot and then that digs into the tire to oh, try to geez. slow it down. Pretty rudimentary, but I used to have vivid fantasies about I knew that the highway we lived on went all the way to South America. This was like before I was in school years, even I was like preschool age and dreaming about just getting on the mini bike and just going and staying on the highway all the way to South America. (laughs) That's a fun dream. How old were you again when you started riding the pedal bike? I would say I was probably four or five. Four or five. Wow. And you never had a balance bike or training wheels. Just went straight for the big guns, eh? (laughs) That's the way it was done. Yeah, no choice at that time. (laughs) So what was sport like for you from that point on? What role did sports play in your life? The role of sport played was it it was the avenue by which I bonded with friends. And it's really the friends that played a strong role in my life. But just the nature of where we lived, I think, really fostered just an athletic lifestyle in general and an adventuring lifestyle. My closest friends were also all living outside of Powell River in this community. But there was great distance between all of us just because you know, we're all on large farms and large acreages. And my closest friends, Lucian and Seth and Tono and Prairie, if, if we were all, you know, it was five kilometers to one house, 10 kilometers to another house. So just to visit with each other meant um, hiking through the bush or riding bikes significant distance. So that naturally evolved into once we met up, it was always meeting on bikes and then exploring by bike. And uh-huh. I had my first real mountain bike in the early 90s you know there was no suspension yet fully rigid (laughs) but we were surrounded by trails and back roads sounds so wholesome (laughs) it was pretty great yeah it's a place in the world that hasn't changed all that much and i think the children growing up there now are experiencing a very similar Mm -hmm. lifestyle fortunately sounds very idyllic well there's no such thing (laughs) we could talk about a whole lot of things that are not ideal (laughs) but as far as outdoor active lifestyle for children Mm. yes in that respect it is pretty ideal we had the ocean as our playground i really enjoyed team sports for the social aspect of it and that's always been i'm definitely a human relationship driven person but i never really excelled in team sports it was individual sports where the athletic side of my abilities really seemed to always shine all through school, did volleyball, basketball, soccer, whatever sports were offered. Yeah. But on the side was always biking and kayaking and rock climbing. And that led to a career for a while as a guide on land and water. So I became an instructor at the Canadian Outdoor Leadership Training Program on Vancouver Island at Strathcona Park. Oh, cool. Spent several years guiding and training other guides in whitewater, river, ocean guiding as well, rock climbing, mountaineering those sorts of things and just sort of got to carry through on my childhood established love Mm -hmm. for outdoor adventure. It wasn't until I was in university that I started getting an appetite for competitive level kayaking. Ended up moving to the Ottawa River, working as a guide and instructor and really just trying to hone my own skills. Wow. Can you tell us your diagnosis and what age you were diagnosed? What I have is a degenerative neurological disease that's hereditary. It's classed as actually the most common hereditary neuropathy. It's called Charcot-Marie-Tooth, which is just the last name of the three doctors that are accredited with identifying and discovering this disease. Oh, okay. It comes in a lot of different manifestations, but they're all genetically very similar, but the symptoms vary somewhat. But essentially, it's uh, the degeneration of the peripheral nervous system. So 
for some, it's more associated with the demyelination of the axons of the nervous system. Those are the more common types of CMT. The type I have is less common. It's called type two, and it's a degeneration of the axons themselves. So the nerve axon over time breaks down, just degenerates, becomes pitted, and gets to a point where the conduction just can't pass a signal through. I visualize it as potholes in the road, basically, that just mm. keep getting bigger and bigger until nothing can pass through. Looking back now, I had symptoms from the time I was probably 12. Oh, wow. But they were so slow in progress for me, which I could probably try to attribute to many different things, but it really didn't advance to a point of other than noticing that my hands are always a bit shaky and maybe I sprain my ankles a little more often than the average athlete. <laughs> other than that, there wasn't a lot until I was in my 30s. And that became kind of a theme, didn't it? When you were kind of tripping lots or breaking ankles or like <laughs> you had some you had some struggles there? Yeah, well, um, I certainly did. But before anybody knew I had a disability, I had the nickname of Cripple. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> which is terrible, but That's it was horrible. actually not because of that. It was because when I was guiding, there was a raft incident on the Petawa River. Anyway, my foot got slammed under a raft under a rock. Oh! The only way to not get a foot entrapment, basically a super dangerous way to drown, is I kept to keep a hold of the raft that was in the current still, and I had to hold on until the bones in my ankle and foot broke to let my foot oh, go. So the next, the rest, of, the rest of that, the rest of that summer, I was kayak guiding with a cast on that was wrapped. I would just wrap it in garbage bags before getting in the kayak, and that's where the nickname came from. Oh, that's horrifying. We didn't know at that time that there was something much, much longer lasting. Oh man, going on as well. Two thousand and nine is when really, uh, I had a significant decline. It came on suddenly enough to necessitate getting some some more diagnosis. And up to that point, I'd been competing at an international level in paddle sport. Oh. But one of the things that happened with the, so the, the longer the axons, the more affected they are. So obviously my legs were most affected, but my arms and hands as well. Oh. And especially in cold water, there's you know, a further, colder the nerves are just like wiring in your house, the, the less imp electrical impulse can get through. And so being that you're usually cold in a lot of the paddling things, I was really noticing loss of strength and so much so that with the high torque required on my paddle for, for racing, I just couldn't grip it anymore. Oh. And so I retired from my international <laughs> athletic career in 2009. <laughs> yeah. And then went back to my love of cycling after that. Okay. So how old were you then when you were diagnosed? Mid thirties. Okay. And this was a bit of a process. And so the doctors are telling you about CMT, how was this for your wife to hear? What did the doctors tell her at the beginning? What did they tell you as a couple? Yeah. Oh, okay. You're going to try You're trying to make me cry or something. <laughs> no, it was a heavy time. We had just moved back to Canada from Cyprus, where I had been on contract to manage the transition of the airports there, building new airports and transitioning to new operations. We returned to Canada expecting our second child. And so there was a lot of turmoil just in life in general preceding this. And we were really fortunate to find our way back to a beautiful rural area in British Columbia, which was our objective where we wanted to raise our kids. And it was pretty new to that move that really these symptoms started to, to pop up and get much more serious. So it was that first year moving back. We went to Nelson, which was the nearest place to have a neurologist take a look at what was going on. And because the early life symptoms had been so easy to dismiss, actually, our minds didn't even go to CMT originally. Because I had numerous traumas in my life, 
including a broken back at one time and a broken neck at another time. Oh, jeez. We thought that maybe there was just some bone callusing causing impingement on nerves, or there were plenty of things that we thought could be part of the problem. So optimistically, because those things probably were more treatable, that's really what we were hoping to hear. But they did some nerve conduction testing, and that day that we went to Nelson, she confirmed that I had CMT and was giving me, this was a technician, not a fully certified and trained neurologist, who really just, I think, is trained enough in it to do the nerve conduction testing, diagnose, and go through the textbook kind of delivery of what that means. Mm. And she was sort of spelling out, especially because of the rate of degeneration that I'd had in that year. She felt like we needed to immediately sell our multi-level house and look for a rancher because I wouldn't be able to deal with multi-level stairs or anything like that. And that I would likely become non-ambulatory in a fairly short period of time. I had come from an athletic life as well as my, before going into airports, I was a firefighter and I had the national record for fire fit. Oh, geez. How many lives have you lived? I was pretty into my physical presence in the world, I guess is the way I would say it. Tristan's being a little bit humble. Modest. Modest. (laughs) Fabio is a nickname some people may have for you. I think drools over your abs. I think you get, you you get fine every time you take your shirt off, right? Like (laughs) you coming from kayaking, climbing, firefighting, like you, very fit. you can say you were very fit. You were very jacked. And still are. (laughs) (laughs) Training from the time I was very young has Mm -hmm. always been part of my daily joy. And so when she was giving her delivery of what she thought my life going forward would look like, I, yeah, I started to cry. I was, I was having a hard time processing. Mm -hmm. The only life I knew was so centered around my physical ability. Movement, yeah. And she looked at me stunned, like, like I had no right to be upset. She said, it's not shortening your lifespan. It's not terminal. And all I could think inside was, it is absolutely terminal to the life I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, a huge loss. Yeah, definitely. When she spoke with Carrie, my wife, I think Carrie kind of seemed dismissive to her. So she recommended that Carrie go into counseling for adjusting to the realities of having a non-ambulatory partner. So that was a really like, all the transition that was going on in our life, plus this, mm. I went into a pretty dark place for that year. Mm-hmm. The emotional high water line that we're used to in life for all of us is different, but for me, I'm quite a high water line. Like I don't have a lot of dips and I'm pretty stable. This was probably the first time that I really experienced depression. Mm. So many good things about that time in retrospect, but going yeah. through it was hard on me and for all those around me. It took about a year before I actually got an appointment to see a really good neurologist. And when I met with him and he was interested in my whole life story and did another set of nerve conduction tests and, and everything and kind of said, yeah, we don't know what it'll be. And that was the first time that I felt like I was really given permission mm. to dream and create it was just like thousands of pounds of bricks you know, just yeah. evaporated mm-hmm. and off my back. And I just felt light and happy. So that's the moment that you kind of got pulled out of the depression then? Yeah, absolutely. Uh. I sometimes speak now for the nursing program here at the College of the Rockies, just to share that story a bit because... Information delivery is important. <laughs> yeah. And I think when professionals are seeing it, a multitude of people in a day, the littlest uh, or what they would perceive as the smallest difference in the way that might they might deliver a story, the life mm. impacts those have, mm-hmm. you know, it was as equally 
life-changing and uplifting to have the other perspective mm -hmm. or the more open perspective mm -hmm. yeah. uh, as the other. And I wish I had the strength to have attained that on my own, but it really mm -hmm. did take having that conversation and realizing that there was the possibility of a much slower progression as well as writing my own story, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that there's not enough research to rule anything out. And that's all I really ever need is just, yeah. I just need a nugget. I just need a little piece of something yeah. and I can make it as grand mm -hmm. as I need to. So that first experience was trying to force you too quickly into acceptance of something beyond your control without hope connecting to meaning and purpose. And then the second was allowing possibility, a hope of something that there is something you can control with healthy lifestyle. You can have an impact on your long-term health. And that little change lit a fire under you. What happened next? I thought, well, if my legs are degenerating faster or that's where I've got the most impairment, that's where I'm going to focus the most amount of energy to be strong. I've always ridden bikes and loved riding bikes, but I took it up a notch and started <laughs> riding hard and realizing I had quite a lot of talent. A very big engine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that paracycling existed at the time. I mean, I'd mm. always, even, I can't remember a time when I didn't have a mountain bike and a road bike and use it for commuting and training. But here in Cranbrook, you know, we're absolutely blessed with the best variety of cycling of anywhere in the world mm, we have yeah. endless mountain bike trails endless gravel roads and great road riding as well i mean many places can tout great mountain biking in this province mm. but not many have fantastic road riding as well with lots of different loops of secondary roads careful tristan you're going to get a lot of people flooding into your area <laughs> all of a sudden the population of cranbrook <laughs> is uh <laughs> spikes well i am a director with tours of cranbrook so that would be good that is part of part of the role for sure <laughs> And running the airport, definitely want to have a lot of people flying here. That's good for business. For <laughs> sure. But no, the truth is, it's just, it is fabulous. Yes. And so as far as having access to that, there was no challenge there. So I just really took it up and started doing a lot of local provincial racing, but finding that most of the people that I looked up to as sort of lifelong, amazing cyclists, I was, I was faster. Mm. And I thought, oh, mm. <laughs> well, this is good. And that, you know, you get those little bits of confirmation that you're doing the right thing when you have success. I was just racing mountain bikes and road bikes for any time I got the chance. I didn't know paracycling existed, but then a group of us were invited to do a ride from Jasper to Canmore as a bit of a tourism promotion video that was being made for Tourism Alberta. And so we were like you know, the models for the, uh, <laughs> for the cycling adventure. And good choice. Yeah. <laughs> Shirts on or off? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> the lead videographer had been doing a lot of filming and he said, I don't mean to be rude, but you cycle really fast, but you don't have a lot of lower leg going on. Do you have, like, is there something, do you have a condition or something? And I said, yeah, I have this thing. And he said, well, he had just, I guess, come from doing a filming project for the Canadian paracycling team. And he said, do you know about paracycling? And I said, Never heard of it. And he gave me the rundown of the people that he had met and what it is. And I thought, well, oh, that's kind of interesting. But it, I didn't really bite any more than that's kind of interesting. He gave mm -hmm. me the phone number of the manager that I guess he had dealt with, uh, Arno Litu, who was the paracycling team manager when I started. I put the card in my pocket and that was it. But then the following week, I was grocery shopping. <laughs> And I pull up the Cycling Canada magazine, as I often do, all grocery shopping. And there's a center article of this paracyclist who recently joined the paracycling team. And it was his first World Cup and he had two silver medals. Mm. And I'm reading the article and the cyclist has CMT. And I've never at this point, other than my grandfather, 
and my aunt, I've never met anyone that had CMT. So I had just heard about paracycling and all of a sudden I'm reading about this paracyclist with all the success mm. who has the same nerve condition that I have. So sometime later that week, I called Arno. That was in 2015. So the year before the Rio mm. games, everything kind of fast-tracked after that. They encouraged me to come out to nationals in Quebec. I didn't have a road race bike at that time. I only had like a multi-purpose enduro kind of bike. So I ordered, I bought this bike, but I had it sent there and hadn't ever put the tires on yet. And it had 25 mil tires, but it only could take up to 23. And it had those cantilever style brakes with a cable across. <laughs> and I didn't notice till after doing the time trial and road race or time trial on this road bike, not time trial bike, but it was all I had to do the national time trial oh, on. Man. And the brake cable was had worn through the tire. Like the tire didn't go flat, but it, it was it was like I had a brake on the entire time. Oh, it was no. rubbing on the tire. So that would have been in the early summer 2015. So, okay. And then you went to Rio, right? There's some races before Rio. Jeez, Louise, you did fast track this. He fast tracked. I want to flip back quickly that article. That was our good pal, Roscoe, Ross Wilson. Oh, he has the same condition as you? Yeah. Oh, I don't think I realized that. I was on the edge of my seat. I'm like, who is it? Who is it? Do I know? (laughs) (laughs) And being able to have Ross kind of share, and this is interesting, how different people are brought into the sport and these different moments. I love your Cycling Canada origin story and how you got in, connecting to the coaches and, and pulled in quickly. But you had a pretty accelerated. You came in with fitness, but to jump into a program, how quickly were you into that next level? While I was able to demonstrate my fitness and strength, it didn't go the way I expected in that I remember. So after that first day, I called two people. I called a close friend here in Cranbrook and I called my wife. I didn't know why I was so sad. What I realized during that time was that it all happened so quickly. I had been diagnosed that I had this disease. This disease was told is going to change my life. I had made some life changes, but I had never seen myself as different then. Or, you know, uh, I'd never been in my mind categorized. Mm-hmm. And so when I went out there, I just thought that cyclists with some sort of impairment would still be just part of nationals. But it was the first time I experienced segregation. Uh-huh. And actually, we had nothing to do with the able body side of things. We were separated as different. I didn't anticipate that. And I remember I was in the hotel before flying home, really down and telling Carrie, you know, it was interesting, but this is not for me. Mm -hmm. And really that's what it was. It was that I wasn't comfortable having to be pulled aside from the general population and identified as a second puppet. Like it Mm -hmm. just didn't feel right. I came home and I guess Guillaume at that time, one of the, one of our great coaches, (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember if we had a conversation, but he knew that I needed time. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty much left alone for a couple of weeks. But then I don't even remember if I called or if he called, but there was a connection made and I'd had time to process. And then things kind of got back on track in a really positive way. But there was a, a required transition period to mm-hmm. recognize that I have a disability and I'm not the same as I've always been. Another moment of the grief journey of accepting, of moving forward in the process. So then you did end up in Rio. Well, that's, I, Oh, I, sorry. Am I missing more races? Yes. That's, Jeez. So, so after nationals, years. <laughs> this is why it's just incredible because as a cyclist who joined very similar, actually, I joined around the same time talking to Guy around 2014, 2015 as well. So to see the progression of where you've been able to go has been incredible. So tell me about 
that next year? So I did get active with the team in time to go to track worlds in 2015 and do two world cups. So my first exposure to paracycle racing was track worlds in 2015 in Monteceri, Italy, which is amazing. Wow. And I won my events. So I became world Ooh. champion in the kilo in the pursuit. And then that qualified you for Rio. Yes, because that gave enough points to earn Canada an additional quota oh, spot. Oh, wow. So I didn't have to bump anybody. That was generous of you. <laughs> I wasn't able to do all the World Cups that season, but the ones I did do, I almost won the World Cup overall because I did win those. Wow. The time trial and road race. So how many world championships have you had in your career since joining 2015? World champion 13 times. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. Wow. <laughs> Do you think that this intense level of activity and work that you're putting into your body, has that delayed the progression, do you think? I choose to believe that that is the truth. Makes sense. I think we all know that the power of intention, the emotional impact of stress and your mental state and way you look at things has a physical manifestation in your body. So at nothing less, even without other science, I know that being healthy, feeling good about what I'm doing and believing that this work is having an effect is having an effect. Mm -hmm. And it probably is. So now, Julie, Rio, you can ask your question. Okay, Rio. <laughs> what, how did Rio go? Oh, wonderful. As I'm sure anyone who's been to a games as part of the community, as a supporter of an athlete or a team or as an athlete, I think I'm glad to say I pretty much anyone I've talked to in all those aspects, it's always a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. So overall, yeah, amazing. And I'm middle-aged. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 46 this May. And so at this later stage in my life that I would be able to go to a games and be part of that, you know, what a gift. It, it was incredible. Yeah. It didn't all go brilliantly. And there were a lot of takeaways for learning for me that I have focused on. When I look at what came out of it, a lot to be super, super proud of and happy about. I mean, I have a, a gold medal from the games and a silver and a bronze, oh, wow. full, full matching, matching set. But I know that I did not execute to the best of my ability in all my events. Oh. And that's something that I think most most athletes that work so hard to have, you know, you want to deliver your very best on the mm -hmm. most important days of your career. I had never really had troubles with stress or anxiety or sleep prior in my life. So didn't really put the tools in place that I probably needed for myself mm. to manage that and ended up not saying anything for far too long to our coaches and the help that we did have there. I went probably four or five days with virtually no sleep before it got to a point where I said to the doctor, I'm becoming dysfunctional now. Mm -hmm. Right away, there was action taken to get me a place where I had more privacy in a room where it was quieter, where I could really focus on some mental exercises. And mm -hmm. the reality of it was I went into my events compromised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would have made a difference in the metal outcomes, but I know it would have made a difference in the times I posted for my pursuit and kilo. I started beating myself up so much over letting the sleep issue get out of hand mm. that that just compounded. <laughs> I started to question whether I'd be able to balance on the bike and get out of the Starkey. Mm -hmm. mm. I think there's some pretty amazing photos that were taken that people don't know this looking back now, but I'm on one of the treatment beds with acupuncture needles sticking out between my eyebrows right before the right before getting on the Starkey for the kilo, you know, just trying mm. any anything possible to sort of mm. wake up as much as possible. 
what's amazing is of course your body knows what to do like yeah. your brain can play all kinds of tricks and talk yourself out of it but when the adrenaline came there was no thinking it was just muscle memory wow. after those track events that's when things really shifted for me and I let all that go and mm -hmm. like it was once that was over I completely came back within myself and started to actually enjoy being at the games and start mm -hmm. to just to appreciate what was really going on rather than what was going on internally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then going into the time trial, I just like, I felt so confident and I felt full of that joy of just riding a bike again. And mm -hmm. when I was on that start ramp feeling that way, instead of the way I had before, I knew that it was going to go well and it was great. And I came through and Olympic gold medalist. Yeah. Ooh, exciting. With all that was going on with the Zika virus and worries that it impacted women more, more risk than men, and it didn't seem like the right time to um, to have the family come down. It's really sad because a big part of my push for Tokyo and like you know being at this age and all the other things in my life, there's plenty of good reasons to do less international racing. But I've been very motivated, not only because I want to do better than I did in Rio, but also I want to share the experience with my immediate family. Mm. And that's, that's been a big part of, yeah, you know, you didn't get to experience that with me in Rio, but you know, Tokyo is going to be amazing oh. and a cultural experience. And now to have COVID and it sounds like it's going to be pretty unlikely that there's going to be any spectators. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's been a big adjustment because that really was a family decision of a big part mm -hmm. of why, I mean, if I'm committing to train for an additional four and now what would have been five years, yeah. that's the family doing that, not mm -hmm. me doing that alone. Yeah. So adapting and changing and, and moving, but there's a sense of why we're doing this and who's along the journey with us. And that brings me to a little segment we want to start with you. And this is the word bird. I want to offer you some words and I'd like to hear how Tristan responds to these, what these words mean to you. All right. You ready? Ready. Ready, Freddie from Fred Penner. Ready, Freddie. Yeah, there we go. Ready, Freddie. Word bird. So this one is actually a bit of reference, which is why I got sparked on this from what you were just saying and referring to. What does this word mean to you? Guilt. Oh, that's interesting. Guilt for me means recognizing having a negative impact on another human being. And how have you wrestled with that word as being an athlete, a dad, a father? Dad a and man. father are the same thing. Or husband. So <laughs> dad and father are the same thing. So father, husband, you run airports and you are world champion, Olympic champ. And there's a lot of sacrifice or there's a lot of choices that do impact other parts of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And every year the guilt gets stronger. And I don't know if that's because the need for me feels more torn or because those that rely on me most are becoming, you know, my daughters specifically, as they get older, there's more visible impact than when they're much younger of, you know, the difference of when I'm able to be hundred percent attentive and when I'm not. Clearly many people could be much better at doing this than I am when it comes to balancing the demands mm -hmm. and doing it in such a way where there doesn't have to be guilt. But, but you, as you may have pulled out of my conversation about the anxiety and pressures I put on myself in Rio and other times that impact things, I'm not able generally to make the required compromises to be okay at many things at the same time. I'm not a multitasker, even though I have all these other facets in my life. And so if I'm doing something, I need to be doing it all in. That has quite a detrimental impact on all of these things that I'm trying to juggle. I just feel so immersed in what I'm doing. I have to complete it to the absolute best of my ability and mm -hmm. then deal with something else. And so I'm constantly not making the compromises mm -hmm. 
that I need to make. And I'm always trying to put everything in separate components of the day instead of letting them blend into a manageable way. Your situation sounds similar to Lowell's in that each aspect of your life could be (laughs) full-time. Career, cycling, family, like each of those things could take up all of your time. I recognize I'm not balancing it. Interesting. The second word I was going to ask you is balance. So it's a, that's an interesting that it went there. Mm-hmm. And also as somebody who has struggles with lower leg control and not a lot of calf, balance is also an issue physically. You're struggling balance-wise in life, but also practically. Yeah. I wonder if there's something deeper to that. <laughs> and also for those that don't understand, it's a loss of conduction through the skeletal nerve system. But it also has a sort of paralysis type effect as well. I have no feeling, say, below the knees, except for kind of the feeling of pain you get when you're frozen from the cold and you step on a sharp oh, rock. I don't yeah. know if you experience that. But that's kind of the only signals of feeling I get, say, in my, in my feet. I have to have very custom-built orthotics supporting my feet with a lot of cushion and walk in a certain very careful way. So I've got this lack of grounding to the world, in essence, as well, mm-hmm. which I think when I look at my life, there's a physical representation of that, but I think there's a real limitation. That's mm. a weakness I have in general is just really being calm and grounded too. Well, your, your definition of balance, it then made sense to me why it seems like you have lived 17 <laughs> lives. You can like give your all at all separate times. <laughs> it's all coming together for me. Yes. My wife, my <laughs> wife would attest to it, driving her crazy that I can't just learn something or be interested in something it's like if i'm interested in something i'm like a hundred percent in if i'm oh that's i'm into photography all of a sudden i've got a dark room (laughs) just change gears but to stay on the same word bird another word suffering what does suffering mean to tristan because it means something different to you than most people i think (laughs) (laughs) to me all that comes to mind is breakthrough to me suffering is not a bad thing it's a bit of a gift experiencing this disability isn't solely responsible for my view, I think, about suffering, but has made it even more clear. I have to speak to a specific incident. For me, in 2001, I was in a bus accident in Mexico and broke my back. And at that time... How many times have you broken your back? That was the only time. I broke my neck another time. (laughs) Oh, geez. But it was pretty traumatic when you have a pretty complex set of injuries. But I was in a a free hospital for the poor in Ciudad Victoria. There was some moments that it was pretty touch and go. And then as I recovered, but was in a wheelchair, it was very unknown what level of recovery I might or might not have. But there were a couple of things that came out of that. One, I very much realized that the levels of joy you can, for me anyway, that I could, that I could realize and achieve and recognize and appreciate were exactly dictated by the level of, you know, the opposite of the spectrum. The bigger rift and gap of what you've experienced is what allows the joy mm-hmm. to really settle in and feel real and be appreciated, I guess. Yeah. And so I feel like the more suffering mm-hmm. someone has in their life, also the more capacity yeah. for appreciating positives and experiencing joy. Ever since that incident, that really opened up my appreciation for any time that something is what we as humans contextualize as negative. Well, it's just creating a bigger rift Mm -hmm. between the two ends of the spectrum or two ends of the pendulum, which create those Mm -hmm. deeper experiences. And the other part of it was that was 2001. I I was at the height of my... Adventuring? Yeah, well, muscular-wise, the strongest I'd ever been. 
and to instantly lose that, I look back at it now and as hard as it was when I made that, you know, we talked about that transition when I got my diagnosis for my disease, I, I actually think that I had a little bit of a mini training camp for that in 2001. Mm. Because this incident that I had was almost like it was preparatory. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that I didn't utilize that learning at the time, but now being much, much, much wiser, yes. wiser now, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I can more easily call on the biggest takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I wheeled out of the hospital to sunlight and smells and views, I just remember an undescribable mm-hmm. amount of happiness that I have never had before. Some context. I mean, I had lost my body or use of my body. Didn't know if it was going to come back at that time. Lost everything material I had because at that time I'd been teaching this guiding program in Quebec and guiding there in the summers. And like that was where my life was, but I was moving back to BC. So with this bus was everything as a guide. And my whole life really was in that vehicle and and everything that I owned was stolen from the accident site. So including all my clothing, my passport. The only clothes I had were donated from high school kids Uh of the nearby school. It was amazing. But the freedom of being totally all of a sudden separated from everything that that I had decided Mm -hmm. to make my identity, all that was left was Mm -hmm. human relationship. It's funny because I do have this, obviously, I have this compulsion to achieve. But really, when it comes down to it, at that time, being valedictorian out of the University of Victoria, all the medals I'd won, none of that ever came into my consciousness Mm. not once one of the things i've seen in you is when you're present in that moment when you breathe you're present and you remember what's important to you your family your girls the relationships you perform at a next level it's really powerful speaking of your girls and you said your disease was genetic have you done any testing to know whether they will acquire it or not or do you know what that would look like for them yeah, so no and kind of, I guess. So no, we've not done any testing because the only kind of test that we can do here in Canada is for type 1A, the more common okay. type, which I did have done. And we know that's not, that's how sort of how we found out the type that they have diagnosed me with, which we're not even 100% hmm. sure of. We know it's type 2, but which type 2, because there's a few different ones, without paying a lot yeah. for more genetic testing. There's mm-hmm. no treatment at present mm-hmm. for any type of CMT. So if there was some benefit mm-hmm. to knowing, to knowing if you had it or to yeah. know what type you had, then of course mm-hmm. we would explore those avenues. Looking at our family history, it affects men much more okay. than women. If one of the girls had it, they, you know, they might have much more mild impacts. Lowell's family had genetic testing done because his eye disease, retinitis pigmentosa, is also genetic. And for them, it's on the X chromosome. So he and his brother both had 50% chance of getting it full-blown or not at all. And they both got it full-blown. Lowell's mom is a carrier, so she's visually impaired, but it hasn't seemed to progress as quickly for her. If we had girls, they would be carriers like his mom, and then their sons would be in the same situation as Lowell. But we had boys, so apparently, according to those results, mm. we cut it off. So I'm just, I'm just living by that. Living by that. <laughs> I, I have a, uh, another question here. What is one life lesson or one truth you've learned from each of the ladies in your life, from your wife and from your daughters? Ooh, to choose one. Well, I think the things I learned the most of are or that's easiest to learn is when it's reflections of what I'm doing that I see in them. So I'm going to start with the youngest, Morgan, who is our ball of energy mm-hmm. and creativity. And I think I spend so much time containing things 
what I need to learn from her is the willingness, like you talked about being in the moment Lowell. And, you know, for me to get there, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise, it's a practice that I need to do. It's not my natural state. When Morgan, it's still her, not, it's her natural state. She's a 10 year old that is spontaneous and can just be absolutely over the moon, what I would call hyper, and, but not hyper in a bad way, like hyper in like, you know, just complete engagement and exuberance for the simplest things. That's what I need to learn from her right now. I would say for Bronwyn, she's very, very different. And she's teaching me the importance of being a dad because like right now, I guess over this past year, I see for the first time how much of an impact it has on her well-being when I'm either there for her or not there for her. So learning from her, the value that I have as mm. a parent. And from Carrie, the biggest thing is work ethic. I mean, my wife is the hardest working person I know and her moral compass her ethics and her drive to be productive are just second to none. You sound like a very productive couple. Hmm. There's a lot of love there. Thank you for sharing those lessons, sharing part of your heart into who they are. They shape you. We can't interact with people we love that much and not come out unchanged. And thank you for reminding me that my actions are shaping them too. <laughs> and I want to pay more attention to it and be better at it. Awesome. Random question. About how many kilometers do you think you have cycled during the pandemic? I know you've had some very crazy experiences. You did the Mount Everest on Zwift and you did the Epic 1000, which didn't you break a record even? Yeah. That's a whole nother I story. Did. That's one of the reasons I was asking about suffering. I mean, that that's a whole nother level of suffering, multi-day rides. Yeah. How long did that take? That took me 77 hours. A lot of suffering because there was also, it's all off road. So there was a lot of other pains and injuries that came up along the way that had to be pushed through. But I did beat the record by, I think it was about eight hours. Oh, wow. That's substantial. And how many hours did you sleep right after? <laughs> 77? Oh, I don't know that, actually. I think I fell back into a fairly normal pattern. So any idea of how many kilometers total in the pandemic? Yes. Well, the pandemic's been... A year, so somewhere between 24,000 plus, 24 to 30,000 kilometers. How many kilometers do you think I've cycled in the pandemic? <laughs> well. On Swift. Uh, I mean, I've done some mountain bikey things with my kids well, and I haven't added those kilometers. So, so we'll just narrow it to Zwift. Well, I know you're super fit, but I have never been clear <laughs> on how much of your fitness time you spend on a bike. But I'm going to guess just in keeping Lowell company and seeing what it's like and being with the kids who I know even Zwift a little bit, I'm going to say you've done 4,000. Oh, that's very generous. On Zwift, closing in on 2,500 kilometers. All we right. Well, I'm quite... <laughs> hey, it's not my job. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I have just a, a few thousand, tens of thousands and you know, to match you. It was a big year for me, but it's not a monumental number of kilometers. There's there's many people doing many, many more, notably Ed Veal, <laughs> a little yeah. pilot who probably cycles more volume than anybody I know. He's Yeah, he's also cuckoo bananas, hey? <laughs> mm -hmm. How about you, Lowell? Yeah, you are probably similar, hey? No, you guys, you guys are next level. That's amazing. Me and Tristan, I know. Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, I know. Ed and Tristan. <laughs> uh, yeah, we anyways. are... Very honored to know you, Tristan, to be able to ride with you. How are you feeling about the upcoming season? Yeah, oh boy. I just can't wait to race my bike. 
I'm so, so grateful that, that we have platforms like Swift and oh, yeah. you know, virtual racing makes it so much more entertaining than you know, the motivation and the mental fortitude required just to you know, get on a set of rollers in a basement staring at a wall like Eddie Burks used to do. <laughs> For me, it's always been about being with people mm-hmm. and accessing adventure and outside. Yeah. Fortunately, we've had spring here um, come early in Cranbrook, really. I've been riding outside for a couple weeks now. It's nice. been amazing. Biking is the one thing where I feel efficient and I don't really get that when I'm on a trainer, but when I'm outside moving efficiently in the way that my body is not fighting with me, mm-hmm. feels so good mm-hmm. and so freeing. So I'm loving it. I love racing, but when it comes down to it, it's just that I love riding bikes in a group of people. (laughs) And whether it's Mm -hmm. racing a World Cup or a World Championships or games or just being out with the Mm -hmm. club, it doesn't actually really matter to me as long Mm -hmm. as we're there together, Mm -hmm. sharing an experience, pushing each other. Just a quick practical question. You ride a regular bike, right? That's correct. Okay. That's impressive. So just for those who might not know, in paracycling, we have different categories and we have different kinds of bikes we do ride. So they're the hand cycles, we have trikes, we have the regular road bikes, but any of them are adapted. And that would be the categories that Tristan's riding in. And then we have the tandems for the visually impaired. Yeah, it's really cool that way. Like that's something else that paracycling has given me is that when I see, especially not only within our own national team, but when we're we're at events with other nations, mm-hmm. and when I see the amount of adaptation that happens, like the amount I've had to adapt is tiny compared to many others. And I look at it and any fear I have of where my disease might go and how it might progress goes away. Because I look at it and I have all these examples of people that are adapting to any level of change physically mm-hmm. and still doing what they love. Parasport is amazing. And we have an incredible group, the Cycling Canada community, specifically for us, the paracycling community. It's part of our family and we look forward to rejoining that family this year. So all you other Cycling Canada athletes out there, heads up, we're all coming for you. Let's, let's go ride together. Let's go out and do great things this year. Yeah, and you were talking about how you guys are fortunate to have Zwift. And yes, you cyclists, compared to other sports, were pretty lucky in the pandemic that you guys had an option for continuing your sport and being competitive even in some capacity. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure that at these next games, with the additional year to train, I feel like within many sports, but especially cycling and the others that have been able to continue with training, we're going to see Olympic records broken beyond the norm of what you see broken. I'm anticipating a significant jump in performance in all aspects of it compared to what we see in a normal four-year cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Lowell, what about, I think it's been probably two and a half or three years from when I first met you at the Burnaby Velodrome. I'm trying to think when you first came, was that two years ago? That would have been 2017 or 18, which was that when you were sick? With Andrew the first time. I was super sick. (laughs) You like had a gastro bug. Yeah. I never get sick, but that was it. And Velodrome, cold, Lying in he a He was like wrapped blanket. in blankets. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. First time meeting it's, Tristan. It's so sad and pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> I think you had a question there coming. Well, it's just, you know, when you're looking forward to the horizon and the, and the races, because in your situation, you're relying a lot on your outdoor training, having a pilot there. And you get to have them when we're on projects or when we're on mm-hmm. training camps or races or velodrome events. But outside of that, is there any way that you're able to get on your bike outside or is everything when you're on your own? indoors yeah it's almost exclusively indoors so i'm riding on zwift inside sometimes we have a friend that you or a couple friends actually Mm -hmm. that live in lethbridge here that once in a while they're free to pilot him and 
I mean, I have, but that's not exactly a training experience for him. <laughs> All biking is amazing and getting out on the bike, but I have a very large bike. And so to be able to get out and have a pilot who can handle such a large bike, um, <laughs> it, um, I might not say this better. Um, <laughs> it's starting to sound very like phallic or something. So I was, uh, <laughs> because my bike is so large, there aren't very many people who can pilot from the front and making sure that I get out and we're safe and the bikes are pretty expensive. It's hard. Julie is amazing. She's great when we get out on the bike. I have some other pilots who've been amazing, but to get the quality training is really indoors. And then to make sure that we're getting out for training camps anytime that I can get around Ed and we can go out for training is awesome. And we really improve in that time. But I also feel like this last year of extra time for me, I haven't hit my plateau yet. I keep breaking my PRs and I keep finding new new levels. So it's been awesome. I've I've really gained a lot in this last year. This is going to sound a bit um, stocky, but I, I'm not stalking. But I do, of course, I notice. I do see your files. And I mean, the power you're putting out, and I see how many times you're getting new PRs and even Ed is still, you know, at his level, still getting new personal best PVs regularly. I think it's a testament to the fact that with these virtual training platforms, you, you really can make those gains and maybe make them even faster than you would in mm -hmm. a normal time of training more outside. Looking at just, I saw the other day, you you did some really short max power efforts and I'm just looking at that drooling going, oh my gosh, how, how, how do I, how would I ever be able to push that much power? It's amazing. <laughs> I struggle on the hills. Tristan, you you are a climber. I mean, I mean, you're just a all all rounder. But stick Ed and I on a hill, and we're gonna we're gonna be Go backwards. huffing and puffing pretty hard. We're gonna be we're gonna be given. But you put us on flats. Like I can put out some power, and that's I want to unleash. Amazing. I was gonna say, Lowell, my cycling with you is not contributing to your power in any way. But my most memorable experience with Lowell was when we. How long is it to Fort McLeod from here? Like. It's an hour? 60 kilometers or oh, whatever. Anyways, quite a ride. Our plan was to go there and then turn around and come home again. But we wanted to stop for something to eat. And we thought it'd be fun to take the tandem through a drive-thru. So we went to the Tim Hortons drive-thru. And we like kind of miscommunicated about when we were stopping. And so Lowell hadn't unclipped. And then we like fell over. And I was feeling like stressed out. There are people stacking up behind us in line at the drive-thru. And I, I'm like, oh, um, I'd like to order. Uh, and then I like look around and I was talking to the garbage can. I wasn't even ordering in like the microphone intercom area. <sighs> yep. Stressful. The challenge of being a pilot. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So there were cars behind you that were witnessing that. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And hopefully they didn't have dash cams then. Or <laughs> Well, we haven't seen the footage floating around online, so they mustn't. It would, sounds like it would be good enough. It would be there by now if it was. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. So we'll thank our lucky stars there. <laughs> yeah, this has been incredible. Thank you, Tristan, for spending time with us. How can people follow along this journey to Tokyo? I have to apologize for anybody that has been super great about following along that I have taken some of my social media channels offline, maybe temporarily, maybe not, but <laughs> with the constraints of my time, I've started to find it too distracting to try to keep up on it. Yeah. So I closed down my Facebook page and I don't really use Twitter. I would say it's a good question. I think I've closed myself off a fair bit lately mm -hmm. because that's what's needed. Yeah. But Cycling Canada will always be following yeah. and sharing and distributing yeah. and the People that need to contact me seem to find a way. I mean, one of the most powerful things for me was after the real games, there were 
I don't want to say hundreds, but well over a hundred emails and letters that oh, came wow. from from people either having a disability and wanting to get more into sport or having a friend or sibling or child and trying to patch through some of those relationships. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So I want to make sure that that remains. But social media in the mm. form that it is right now in our society, I don't find has been, right. I haven't been able to manage it in a very helpful way. So. Us either. We we have social media handles and we post, but very rarely check. So, uh, sorry, friends. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think the answer for you then is for, for individuals who want to follow Tristan's journey, the World Cups through to Tokyo, follow along Cycling Canada official. They yeah. definitely will be highlighting <laughs> the road to Tokyo for Tristan. And so, everybody follow along. Let's cheer loud and let's and see. And Julie if we Lowell can, can, and we'll post about him too. We'll be posting too. <laughs> follow along and yeah. All the best to you as you, you push down this road. Thank you both. Great to chat with you. Nice to meet you, Julie. And Lowell, we'll yeah, see you, you too. really soon. Awesome. Talk to you later, Tristan. Okay, take care. <laughs> Bye. 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 Tristan Trenov, teammate, the man, the myth, the legend. We got to hear his origin story as well. Yeah, thanks for introducing me to your pal. I've heard a lot about him, so it was fun to actually connect with him in a semi-face-to-face way. That ended up being a longer conversation than we thought it might be. I've, I've chatted with him so much, but it just he's an individual with so much depth and breadth and passion. His mindset really is contagious. And to have somebody at that level, I mean, this man has done so much. And to hear how he's reflecting back on the journey, to hear how he's turned his obstacles into opportunities in his life, it's pretty inspirational even for me as a teammate. So thanks, Tristan, for sharing with us. And we didn't even really talk about his current job so much, but isn't he also running an airport? Yeah, he, <laughs> and he, he has a pretty demanding job. My goodness. Makes yeah. me sleepy. And I believe, I, we should have asked him, but I think a consultant for multiple airports. So this isn't just like a small job. He has a full-on, very demanding career that he has to balance. So when he's away on projects and races, he's still working. So yeah, this is very similar to you. <laughs> a person who's had to really learn that idea of boat balance. Mm-hmm. Sport has been right from the beginning for him, being connected to nature, enjoying being around people, and the importance of people in his journey of overcoming, the love he has for his family, mm-hmm. for his wife and his daughters. That's pretty important. Yeah, I wanted to learn a little bit more about his wife and how they met and their relationship and mm-hmm. Her role now and all those things, but suppose there might need to be a part two someday in the future. Yes, or at the very least, we'll our families will hang out in real life. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening, awesome. and we hope you enjoyed. Thanks, Tristan. And until next time, take care. Leading to Tokyo 2021, this podcast will be focusing on the stories of elite athletes. If you or someone you know has overcome obstacles on your quest for world class competition, and you'd like to be on our show please find us at obstaclesandopportunities.com and reach out. Our podcast social media handles are at obsopspod, that is O-B-S-O-P-S-P-O-D. And our personal handles are at Julie Lowell Can, J-U-L-I-E-L-O-W-E-L-L-C-A-N. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.